Welcome back to the Coaches Rising podcast and I've got a real conversation for you here. I'm going to be speaking with Four Arrows. I'm quite touched actually. Just got off the call. Four Arrows finished by sharing a prayer and playing the flute and then left the call in a very Four Arrows kind of way. What are we going to talk about today? Well, we're going to be talking about Four Arrows work, exploring, articulating, bringing to light a kinship worldview or an indigenous worldview, contrasting that with what he calls a metropolitan or dominant worldview, and how an indigenous worldview or kinship worldview is something that we need to shift towards if we're going to move and navigate through these times and how does that all impact coaching, the work we do as coaching? We'll talk about concentration, activated transformation, or trans-based learning. Four Arrows was a highly successful hypnotherapist uh, working with many sports people, such as the world champion fencer, Natalie Molheisen, and has worked with many different types of people. Has some quite incredible stories about... Uh, the kinds of transformation and shifts that can occur through trans-based learning. So we'll talk about we'll talk about that. We'll talk about what's the orientation that we can take in these times. How could we hold this word hope when, in four hours' view, it's unlikely we're going to make it through these times without a, a real significant loss? So I found that very moving. There's so much that we talked about. So I really recommend with this conversation that you, you just listen to this one all the way through the end. The final sort of 15, 20 minutes, you know, is just four arrows, um, waxing, lyrical, uh, really, I was fascinated, riveted, enraptured by what he was sharing. So just to share a little bit more about four arrows, he is a faculty in the School of Leadership Studies at Fielding Graduate University, a former Dean of Education at Oglala Lakota College and a tenured associate professor at Northern Arizona University. He's authored 21 books relating to wellness, critical theory, education and indigenous worldviews and has been praised by notable thinkers such as Noam Chomsky, John Pilger, Dan Millman, Bruce Lipton and many others. Uh, he's quite a fascinating man, actually. You know, he's gonna, as you'll hear from the different stories he tells from his from his life, such as the near death experience he had and his interactions with indigenous peoples. So, yeah, really hope you enjoy this one and it moves you in the way that it did with me. And let's dive in. Here's the podcast with four arrows. Four arrows. It's it's um, wonderful to be with you. And well, first of all, how are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Uh, I we have uh, had a, hur- a hurricane two three days ago. Not a hur- it was a, a tropical storm. It didn't quite make it to hurricane status, and uh, and then uh, the day before yesterday we had a, an earthquake, and uh, and so we're here without power, but um, uh, all is fine and nobody's hurt and not not very much damage to anything around here. And uh, just for the people listening to this podcast, you know, I, I'm seeing you on screen and you've got this incredible background. In fact, every time I speak to you, you're always somewhere that looks really interesting. But just describe where you are right now. Well, we're on the uh, Costa Alegre, the happy coast of, of Mexico, the Pacific coast, about halfway between Puerto Vallarta and Manzanilla. 
and uh, we're uh, adjacent to thousands of hectares of uh, reserve uh, dry rainforest. So we're, we're, we have about 70 uh, endangered species out the door and, um, and uh, one of the best, uh, best, best spots ever, except for when we, where we go to the west coast of Vancouver Island on Toqua land in the, in the summer usually. My wife is there now and she'll be joining me soon, but I, uh, I stayed here for the summer to get some, uh, some work done. Mm. And I'm seeing you're in a, like an elevated uh, kind of space, and I can just see the the rainforest spreading out behind you. So um, we've got a lot to talk about today. Really appreciate you being here. And I got introduced to your work not long ago, and um, you know you were a speaker on the summit we did in the panel. And I so I think a good place to start. We're going to talk about the kinship worldview today, like an indigenous worldview, how that could. Uh, influence coaching, how that could have an impact on the work we do as coaches. Uh, I feel that, you know, as people would have heard on this podcast, it's no longer enough for us just to be learning inside the the field of coaching, which is important, you know, like how, how can I coach? How can I take people on these deep transformational journeys? But we also need to be kind of taking one step outside of it and looking at these worldviews that we're swimming inside of, you know, what what's the worldview that is um is actually ending perhaps or you know we, some people talk about the time between worlds right now and the crises that we're facing and and the context this global context that we're all situated within are are like really important for us because um because we've inherited a lot of deep beliefs about what it is to be human on this planet and so that's why uh, we're going to be here today and so and we're just wondering if you could actually begin by sharing a little bit of like who who you are, basically, like what you know what who you are, and and like what have you focused your life's work on? I know you could probably speak about that for a full hour, so um, you know, in a somewhat condensed way. But maybe that's a good place to start. Well, maybe you know, kind of what brought me to this work would be would be worth worth worthwhile to mention. I uh, I'll, I'll start with having been raised in uh, St. Louis county without any uh any awareness of uh of my indigeneity uh with uh, just the the talk of the family my mother and her sisters about our uh, great great grandmother having been uh, adopted after escaping from the trail of tears up in joplin missouri but nothing and jumped to the marine corps and uh, uh I was a vietnam officer uh, uh in the vietnam era officer and uh, had a, uh, an experience of uh, recognizing the, the lies about the war uh, and kind of took it out after my, uh, my honorable discharge on uh, by doing whitewater river adventures and uh, 100 mile races, triathlons, horse racing, horse training, wild horse training. And uh, wound up trying to go down a river here in Mexico called the Rio Urique that had never been accomplished ever. And I failed also. And, uh, and in my, uh, the, the hope for more rain in it, because my partner and I were having to portage a lot of the, the falls with, that were uh, just too dangerous to go down. I wound up having a near-death experience by going underwater and where the river disappeared into an underground drainage. Had a vision after that uh, of, uh, that was based on two animals that we saw. One was a 
mountain lion called an onsa that was in a cave we lived in that showed us the way out so we could climb out of the canyon. And, uh, I, and another was a, a, a fawn, a, a deer that was being carried by a Rawamari Indian who had run it down because they're such great runners. And those two ideas of the cat and the fawn became neon lights and, and, and words uh, like in a big city like New York. And that cat fawn we'll talk a little bit about is, is a tool that Dr. Michael Fisher refers to as a dehypnotizing strategy or technology, he calls it a dehypnotizing technology that is very useful for coaches. And we can run through what that is later. But um, I came back uh, because uh, the Ra Ra Marie saved us. And uh, I wanted to understand what this vision meant. So I returned a number of years, I think it was 15 years later to uh, help the Ra Ra Marie who right now are, are, are desperately uh, suffering from the cartels and lo losing their, their forests and, and their lives. And, uh, but they saved my life. So I went back to try to help them. Um, and what I saw in the way they lived and in, their, in, the, in the way they communicated and, and in the relationships with each other, with the children, the joy, the beauty uh, that, that they showed, I, I was, was completely convinced that my vision had to do with, with indigeneity. So I quit my coaching. I was a, I was a sports psychologist and, and, uh, and, and coach. And I quit the business and uh, went in to uh, get my doctorate in education uh, so that I could teach this stuff. And that's kind of, I became a, right out of uh, Boise State University. I became director of education at Oglala Lakota College on the Pine Ridge uh, reservation. You know, all, all the reservations were once uh, well, prison of war camps and uh, became a sun dancer with them as a maid relative, uh, one of the seven sacred ceremonies um, of the medicine horse Teospaye. And, uh, and I began uh, from, that, from that point on, uh, moving on to Northern Arizona University to work with 14 tribes there and and now at Fielding Graduate University, where we have graduated more doctoral uh, indigenous doctorates than any other other university, and uh, and so my passion is trying to do two things simultaneously, and that is support the indigenous people who, against all odds, are trying to hold on to their 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 ways of knowing, and at the same time, while we do that, uh, help people who are uh, not indigenous uh, to a, in terms of the United Nations uh, identity uh, criteria, but are indigenous to planet Earth to remember this, uh, this way of understanding. So uh, in our most recent uh, book, uh, the uh, Restoring the Kinship Worldview, we, we introduce uh, 28 of the 40 worldview precepts that we'll talk about probably as they relate to coaching. Yeah, there's so many questions I could ask. Um, what maybe this is a good way to to segue into the the kinship worldview or the indigenous worldview and and begin to sort of articulate what that is compared to what uh, other worldviews might be. And 
Um, you, may, you might even reference that to these peoples you, you met in Mexico. But yeah, what what is how would you describe what an indigenous worldview is? So um, essentially, let's talk just briefly, uh, a little bit academically about what the concept of a worldview has been. Worldview was was coined uh, in Germany in the, in the 1870s uh, during the Enlightenment movement, which we now know wasn't a European movement, but it was uh, echoing the voices of indigenous slaves in Europe who were uh, criticizing uh, the 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 way of life of Europe. And that really was what Thoreau and all the people of the Enlightenment used uh, was this indigenous wisdom. But worldview from that point began, it, of course, it was, that was fought against and denied because you know, they were seen as savages. So how could they have, uh, have enlightenment? But worldview essentially was a, a battle between science and religion. And in fact, today, if you go on Amazon and put in the word worldview, 90% of the text will be a, a, from a religious perspective, one, one religion claiming to be a worldview. And even most scholarship today still uh, uses worldview to refer to a culture, a, a philosophy, almost anything. But that wasn't really even the original intent. But in the 40s and 50s, the father of social anthropology, Robert Redfield, out of the University of Chicago, he began to look at the, at the deep essence of what was meant by worldview when it was first coined, and that it was really about what is the relationship between humans, nature, and supernature, or the mystical world. And he is, and his team uh, at that in the early 30s that said there's three worldviews only, and all cultures and religions and ideologies can fit under one of the three. Uh, that was the Eastern one what he, uh, and the primitive one, what we're calling indigenous, and the metropolitan one or civilized one, which we're calling dominant. But by the 40s and 50s, he felt that the Eastern, in spite of still having many uh, traditions that were close to returning to indigeneity, that they had largely sus uh, subsumed the Western ways. So he said there's really only two worldviews, and there's the dominant worldview, and there is the one that we had before that, the indigenous worldview that was nature, nature-based instead of anthropocentric or human-based uh, or human-centered. And so what is, a, what is a worldview really are, are sort of moral precepts about relationships. And so the, the research reveals from first contacts, uh, even Columbus's uh, log books, talking about how generous uh, the the Taino people were um, these kinds of ideas like generosity and 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 non hierarchy and uh, socially purposeful and uh, inseparability of head and heart and uh, animistic and words as sacred you know a, a wonderful book by a friend of mine Tom Cooper entitled uh, uh, a time before deception uh, talks about uh, how when, when lies were first told to the Lakota, we did ceremonies because we thought they, the people must have had a mental illness and they couldn't see reality. Right? So all of these kinds of ideas like honesty, generosity, courage, uh, fearless trust in the universe, recognition of spiritual energies, there's 40 of them. Um, and uh, like I say, I, I can I can show show them to your audience, but we can I can also read read them all. But or they can simply go to Google and put in. Oh, you hear that noise right now? 
Uh, yeah, yeah, just in the background. Yeah, what was that? Yeah, yeah, that's a chalakahekka. I can't hardly pronounce it, but it's a type of a large bird that looks like a roadrunner. And, uh, and and they they land in the trees and, and they make that noise when they see a snake. So that means there's a snake in the area. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, these uh, I'm, I'm, I'm showing showing you these these now. But um, Robert Redfield referred to the, the loss of the, the the indigenous worldview and the takeover overshadowing it as the greatest tragedy in human history. And he said that's because that our original nature-based, place-based or worldview, it was a, was a moral worldview um, as, a, as opposed to the, what the materialistic. And the, the language of indigenous people is actually stems from the earth. So, so if you were going to walk across British Columbia, for example, and you were observant and you notice a change in flora and fauna, you, you saw different animals. Well, all that at, right at that line, you will see that there's a different language that 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 comes from that. So language, and it's so it's a, it's not about categorizing. It's about it's verb based and adjective based, and it's it's about flowing. So uh, if you looked at a tree, you couldn't say that's an oak tree. You have to, you know, talk about the wind uh, conditions and whether there's a nest in it, and and uh, and all kinds of varieties of of ideas like that. So we've lost that worldview largely in the dominant worldview. Although there are a number of of cultures that are against all odds hold wholly on onto it and and we have to support them while we relearn how to indigenize ourselves to our local place uh and use language whatever we have english or german or whatever as best we can to begin to describe the 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 life that's around us so in the in the world just to, can i jump in can yeah. I just jump in? Because I think um, I sort just kind of bookmark where you are. Because I think what you just said is quite profound in a sense. Yeah, like what one thing I'm noticing and inquiring into is like the way that my mind, my is sort of uh, I've grown up in a world that that uh, privileges a kind of form of of uh, rational thinking, which can increase in kind of complexity. Uh, you know, categorizing things, synthesizing uh, categories of information and increasing abstraction. And there's something beautiful about that. But at the same time, what I'm what I'm feeling is it, it's like it's taken me out of con contact with the kind of immediacy of my experience with with a with a kind of re relationship to nature. And and when I hear you talking about indigenous peoples and and how their language emerges from nature and has a is a verb it's a it's kind of it has a, a flow to it this speaks to me of a of a very different kind of identity you know one in which we're in in a kind of much more intimacy or symbiosis with with nature in fact we are we are indistinguishable from it and that to me seems quite profound perhaps in us being able to navigate these times and i just wanted to see what you thought of that what I'm saying. Well, sure. You know, one of the worldview precepts uh, is the inseparability of head and heart. But in indigenous ways, it's about leading with the heart and following with the head. Um, the 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 interconnections that you have, I often express uh, when I have given presentations around the world. I'll 
I'll have everybody as they're starting to sit down. I said, just, you know, put all your materials down. It'll be safe. And I'd like you to walk out the doors, uh, go down the hall and go outside and you'll find an, a number of plants there, some trees and some, some potted plants. And I just like you to go and touch one of them and come back. So people kind of look at me strangely and they go and do it. And they come back in about five minutes and, and start to sit down. And then I stop them and I say, okay, you're probably going to laugh and, 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 but, but stay with me on this. I want you to go back out and do it again, except this time I want you to ask permission of that plant or that tree before you touch it and wait for an answer. Of course, you usually always gets a little bit of a guffaw. Um, and uh, although I did this in Japan with, uh, with Buddhist monks and they kind of nodded and went out. Right. But usually it's a, uh, it's a strange idea. Well, when people come back, uh, it's it's always silent, and it's you can feel this uh, the, the profoundness in the air, and always somebody who reports out will cry, uh, and they 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 talk about that you know I couldn't exactly it wasn't like words I heard but the tree it kind of said that it, uh, this is going to sound really weird you know but like. It, it was in a hurricane and it lost its relatives and it, it and, you know, things that are is, is, is like that. And, uh, and I, and then I kind of start my presentation by saying, imagine living 24 seven with that kind of, uh, of shared breath uh, with uh, other than other than humans. And, 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 you know, and, and in the coaching world, if, if, if we look at these ideas about, competition as a way to uh, improve one's highest potential as opposed to winning. Uh, if we looked at the, the uh, flexible boundaries, the recognition of spiritual energies, the you know, inseparability of knowledge and action, and complementary duality, it changes the the maximum performance whether you're uh, you're talking about life coaching or whether you're talking about athletic coaching uh and 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 you know i have um one of my clients natalie molhausen when she came to me she was 265th in the in the world in fencing uh she was uh, uh, out of brazil and she is now the world champion and we started with uh, the kind of trance-based learning that is common in indigeneity. We started with uh, the ocean and her fears of it. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, I don't see how, you know, one can, can coach in any way from a dominant worldview and not miss some of the most important dynamics of, of, of your goal, of your mutual goals with, with the client. Could you say why? Yes. Be, be, why, why it would be, because if, if you, let's say if, if you look over on the left side, if, if you're competing only to feel superior, ultimately you're not going to get where you want to go. Or if you get there, you're going to be depressed. I've seen it over and over again. You're not going to accomplish your goals. If you're more head than heart, 
you're, you're going to miss out on all kinds of opportunities for self-transformation. If you focus on your self, uh, uh, focus on self and personal gain and not community, you're going to miss out. Uh, Fear-based thoughts on, on down, we could go probably a half, if not two thirds of these. For example, just not using tr uh, trance. There's not a gold medalist in any Olympics over the last 25 years that has not got a sports psychologist and used self or, or hypnosis, whether self-hypnosis or hetero-hypnosis. And yet trance-based learning is not a huge component in the coaching uh, business. Wow, I don't see how anyone can can maximize without moving outside of, of, of cognitive and willful determination uh, and moving into that kind of uh, that kind of uh, transformative natural transformative thinking that we call hypnosis the cognitive and willful determination that would be in that kind of dominant worldview are you saying right yeah, yeah. and so because um you know I, I think that's often there's so many different directions we can go in. And I, I want to like, just, just to sort of step back for a moment, um, talk about trans-based learning, actually, like pivot to that in a moment. But first I want to kind of like stay on this like um, indigenous worldview, looking at how, because some people might say, uh, how, how's that going to, how does this relate to my executive coaching client, you know, who's working in this corporation and they're focused on, performance and generating income this all sounds really beautiful but uh you know how do i relate that to coaching so i want to go there but i think you know in in a sense we're we're doing that through these different points these that we're looking at on the screen now and you just said like cognitive and willful determination i i, I can imagine that that uh a lot of human beings from um certainly i know in my own experiences that was the predominant way to try to succeed yeah you know, to try to get ahead, to try to grow, uh, willful determination. I'm going to try and make this happen. What I learned through experience was like, it just didn't, it didn't work. You know, actually, I, I never questioned the deeper premise of where that was all coming from. So could you say a bit more about that specific? Sure. One, uh, of, one, of, one of the laws of, uh, of this phenomenon of hypnosis as it's been adapted by Western uh, uh, medical uh, uh, you know, people that use hypnosis and hypnotherapy is that the harder you try to do something, the more willful determination you have, the more likely it is you'll fail. So you think about this. Think about someone who wants to uh, uh, to not be afraid when speaking to an audience and uh, just got a job as a, as a, as a salesman and, and, and he, he needs to go out and speak to people and boy, his knees are shaking and he's just, you know, the harder he tries to do it, the more likely it is he's going to focus on the things that he's afraid of. And the more likely it is that he'll, he'll, he'll fall. I'll give you an example. Uh, maybe that'll help. If, if I took a two by four and put it on the floor, and I said, I'd like for you to just walk from one end to the other. Most people can do that. If I raise it 2,000 feet up in the air between two towers, and I bring you up in a helicopter, and I say, I'd like you to do it again. There's no wind. Uh, it's the same thing. It's solid. Uh, most likely, you wouldn't do it. The imagined, <laughs> the, the imagined possibility of falling 
would be much stronger than the willful determination and much stronger than the cognitive understanding of logic that, hey, it's exactly the same physiological balancing act. So I could say, look, I'd say it is the same thing as you did down there. How about I give you a million dollars? Well, even if you took it, which most people probably wouldn't, you'd probably fall because of that imagined possibility, okay? And so if it's that, in fact, just using that example, if our lives are that dependent upon our natural uh, and spontaneous hypnotic uh, ways of understanding the world, then we can see that if we just use willful determination alone, and we are not aware of both the counter hypnotic suggestions to our goals, which most of them will come from early childhood during the first five years, you can get a, an executive who is just fired up to, to, to get a, a making a, 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 you know, a, a great accomplishment. And he's going to be held back by early childhood beliefs and fears. Uh, and if he's not aware of them and how to transform them, uh, and, and replace them with new brain synapses through ceremony, which is what hypnosis is. Uh, indigenous people have been using this without knowing the term hypnosis. That's what, you know, ceremony is a, is a relational approach to specific intentions uh, in a lower brainwave frequency with uh, things that put us into that, whether it be drumming or a dark room and, uh, and, and, and visualizing and believing in that image. That's all hypnosis is, is deeply believing in an image while in a lower brainwave frequency. So, you know, this is a natural thing. Uh, if people go on YouTube, they can put in wild horse hypnotist. They can see me doing this with a wild horse uh, on a television program. Uh, all creatures become hypersuggestible to the communication of a perceived authority figure. You think about why are we polluting our oceans and our rivers? Why are we polluting our cities and our air? Why are we at war with one another? And you know, how can intelligent, an intelligent species do this? Well, it, my only explanation is uh, that it's the, the unconscious hypnosis or the early childhood hypnosis or the hypnosis that comes during fear. I, I wrote a book that Prentice Hall published and it was banned for 20 years and it's coming out again uh, with another publisher, but it's called Patient Communication for First Responders, The First Hour of Trauma. And I wrote it as, a, as, a, as an EMT myself who recognize that when people are in states of stress or fear, you, they, are, they are in a state of hypnosis. So your, your listeners could, could uh, come upon, I hope this doesn't happen, an automobile accident on their way home, and someone could be in the front seat of that car hemorrhaging, and the car could be smashed so he can't open the door to give direct pressure. He could say, listen, I am trained in, these, in, 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 in what I'm about to do with you. I want you to know the worst is over. Things are being made ready at the hospital. I've called. Uh, ambulance is on its way. But you're hemorrhaging. I want to want us to get that stopped right away. So when I count to three, I want you to stop your bleeding. One, two, three. Ninety percent of the time during the first hour of trauma before old programs take over, 
just like a yogi can control their blood pressure or, or, or pulse rate, they will stop their bleeding. And, and so, um, you know, this, this idea of naturalistic trance-based learning, I cannot see how it cannot be a tool that every coach would want, would want to, uh, to employ with the idea of teaching it and teaching the skill as, as self-hypnosis to a client, as opposed to, you know, uh, being a, a hypnotherapist. You know, I, I, uh, I, I give that to others' choices, but I was, you know, I, I was a hypnotherapist in Marin County. And uh, um, ultimately, uh, you know, making money off of something that you can teach somebody else to do just didn't fit with me, right? So this is a natural thing, and, and it's not uh, all the misconceptions about it. Although sometimes it's, it's easier and helpful, helpful if, if someone else can, can guide, guide you. Ultimately, a, a good coach will be able to do both. Let me, let me help you with, with, with visualizing this, but then I also want to teach you what I did and how to do it yourself. Yeah, beautiful. Well, maybe let's just stay on this. How, how uh, would you t- teach somebody to do self health, uh, self hypnosis? Sorry, how would well, you a real teach simple that? Way, a real simple way that I talk about in the first chapter of my book, Point of Departure, uh, is with a a, a a pendulum device. It could be a, a paper clip and a piece of dental floss, right? Just anything that you can hold between your finger and thumb. And uh, I don't think I have something on right now that would, would work, but anything that you hold between your finger and thumb with your elbow resting on the table uh, and, and, and move it in a circle with your fingers, like just like I'm doing here. Move it just in, using the muscles of the thumbs and the finger and the, and the wrist and just move it and look at it so you can see what it looks like when it's going in a circle. And then make it as small a circle as you can by, by using the same physical efforts okay now imagine it going in a circle without willfully doing it just imagine it going in a circle and believe in that the idiomotor neurons when someone is really believing in it and isn't isn't being skeptical or isn't thinking about something else if they really are imagining what they saw it do when they tried then that pendulum will go in a circle. And now why is that important? Well, idiomotor neurons simply are a demonstration that you have moved into an alternative consciousness, a light trance state. In fact, if you sit down with that pendulum and, uh, and, and you should get one yourself while we're talking and try it. Um, if, 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 if you can get that, um, if you imagine that just by not trying, but just imagining it and all of a sudden it starts going instead of getting freaked out by it, just stay with it. You can get that sucker going really fast. All right. When that is happening, you are in a light trance that's sufficient to have your appendix taken out. Uh, and, which I did without, 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 without anesthesia. Yeah. I, 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 I have a story I can tell about that. I did it at Kaiser and Dr. Trevor Hughes was the anesthesiologist. He hooked me up, but I, uh, you know, I, I said, I want to know what my clients experience when I do hypnosis with them. So I want to try it. And, um, 
the the amazing thing was the scar and when i saw saw it when they lifted the bandage off went exactly the opposite direction of what i had been feeling of the pain that i had been feeling but not being bothered by that was my my suggestion was nothing to bother and that was because my the only time i'd ever seen an appendectomy scar had been my father's and when i was very young and and in those days they did they did a a, a vertical cut instead of a horizontal one right and so the, the hypnosis was an image of, of of it in spite of feeling the, the you know the the, the sensation wow. was actually so great. the memory the mind was yeah, was yeah. more powerful than the imposing on the actual experience yeah yeah so so what so then when people have this going in a circle if they have a predetermined goal that's that that meets an acronym I call credible. Um, uh, we can, I can, it, it has to, uh, it, it has to be relatively, it has to invoke the imagination. It has to be relatively believable. You have to realize that words will be taken literally. Uh, so, you know, you, you would not come up to somebody and say, you're, you're not going to die because the word die fosters more image than you're not going to. So you would say you're going to live, right? That kind of idea. So the words, and then with just the right amount of, of enthusiasm, not too much, not too little. And so if you have a, 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 a sentence, you know, whenever I pick up that cigarette, my hand will stop before it gets to my lips and I will contemplate on breathing fresh air, and the importance of breath in the world and, and you know, whatever it's going to be. And if you have that down, because if you have to think about what you're going to do, the pendulum will stop. So you're double tasking. You're imagining keeping this thing going and spinning. And now you're going to double task and equally deeply imagine you're speaking at the conference or your whatever it is. Right. And, and, all it's really doing is replacing you paying me $300 an hour to hypnotize you. <laughs> okay. It's, it's, it's that you have a, 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 a tool now and that's your idiomotor neurons that when you get them moving, you are in this, a light trance state. Now, now do you need to do that? No. Once you start l learning this, you know how to go in and out of it. Right. And this is what, what we did when, when we really needed to be more generous or when we wanted to uh, go out and haunt a dangerous lion or whatever, um, you know, or we wanted to give thanks for a, 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 the day, you know, we went into hypnosis, but we, you know, we did it not knowing it was some, you know, brainwave frequency and all that stuff. We just knew it was a natural way for us to, to move into a different uh, realm. Uh, and we use ceremonies mostly for it, but we could also do it spontaneously uh, during times of fear. And, and, and we would go then move from courage, from, from fear to courage. But then from courage, we would go into a trust in the universe that I, I call fearless courage. Uh, and, and this is what I've witnessed in, in indigenous, you know, very, very primal indigenous cultures that I've, that I've been with. Beautiful. Um, so presumably um, you, you could teach clients how to um, self-hypnotize and even to access these trance-like states in order to, um, for them to, you know, to learn, to grow, to perform highly, to, to access deeper types of wisdom. 
And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Like, would, would that be, you know, would would it be like giving, you know, the pendulum example, like have, having your client do that? Or, or would there be other ways that might be, that we could teach people the power of, sure. of the if language. You, yeah. you could just go on Google and, and look in hypnotic inductions and you'll find a, a million. I mean, having somebody imagine walking down a staircase and all these things. There's a lot of them. Uh, you know, there's only a few states that, that make it illegal to practice hypnotherapy. But I would recommend that you don't call it hypnosis because of all the baggage that, that uh, uh, and misinterpretations about that concept. To call it visualization, you know, and, uh, uh, and don't, don't claim it's, it's hypnosis. But um, uh, in any case, just by listening to what I said for five minutes, anybody can, can, can learn this and teach it. You know, the, the, the challenge is helping, knowing what is the hypnotic directive that is the best for your client. And that comes from creativity. It comes from experience. It comes from uh, dialogue with the client. It comes from a lot of things, right? But um, uh, ultimately, you know, when, when you and the client are, are clear on the motives and the goals, and, and, and that means making sure those goals are not violating any of the things on the left side of the worldview chart. If those goals are embodying a rigid hierarchy, if they're embodying fear-based thoughts, if they're embodying living without social purpose and just focusing on personal gain alone, uh, if they're overly materialistic, keep in mind this chart, you know, as I say, and I think it's really important to, 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 to read the, the preface, it's not a rigid binary. It's not intended as that, that that's, that's a, the, the dominant worldview is a rigid binary worldview. It's either this or that. It's win or lose, right? It, the indigenous worldview is known by scholars as a non-binary. So how can you have this binary chart and look at it as with a non-binary world? Well, you look at the, 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 the things as not good and bad. You, you look at them as a continuum. You look at, okay, right now, you know, I am in a rigid hierarchy in my organization. Uh, is that, and, and, and since that, that's a common worldview manifestation that, uh, that Foros is saying is contributing to our demise, to our being in a mass extinction, to, to failure ultimately, um, and that the indigenous worldview was non-hierarchical for a reason. But, you know, instead of one being good and one being bad, so what are the... Let's look at this and from a dialogical way. Let's let's open ourselves up to talking about how we're all in the same boat here, and um, even the Lakota, which were a non-hierarchical uh, nation, uh, when the buffalo hunt went, it, it changed. People uh, was uh, somebody would be the, become the hierarchical leader for the buffalo hunt. And a different person would be that person each time. So there wasn't a permanent hierarchy, but it was it was put into place right for that. And then and then they got back into the community and, you know, uh, you know, which would be a matriarchy. So there was a certain amount of of of, of priority on the on the women's, uh, uh, you know, ultimate vote. But, you know, it, it was not a hierarchy. So so, you know, if 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 if. if the coach looks at before doing any hypnosis, you want to look at it and have these kinds of conversations. What, how could you achieve your goal of making your company number one and earning the most amount of money 
and somehow move into non-materialistic thinking in, in, in your heart. You know, a, a, a nice uh, presentation on this somebody sent me yesterday. Uh, I don't know what uh, web links to give you or anything, but if you just put in some keywords, I'm sure it would come up. But it was a, a, a Hawaiian woman who uh, uh, grew up spearfishing in Hawaii with her dad and uh, wound up becoming a world champion uh, uh, deep diver. I think she went uh, five and a half minutes holding her breath, going 159 feet. Um, and uh, uh, had an experience with a shark where her, her, her learned fearlessness brought her to just uh, allow herself to be one with that shark. And actually there's an, a, a, a video of her riding that shark. But she talks about how, when she got into competitive spearfishing, which is a, 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 you know, a big deal, and she was the champion, and she kept trying to win the championship, she recognized that this materialistic orientation, this looking at the fish as its and as, as dollars instead of sentient creatures with families, and, you know, it, she just completely changed everything. And now she's happy and, 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 you know, and, uh, you know, and she goes out and does her, her diving and her fishing to bring fish to poor communities. And, you know, it's, but it's, it's uh, you know, I'm just, I'm not really doing it justice, but uh, it's an example of how uh, somebody in a materialistic mindset can, can, can get to a, a better place uh, with these tools. And, and you're only going to get there by, deciding on well is this a buffalo hunt or is this the community and is and and and, and what which of these things um uh, are are have to be put into my my psyche before i i i go for this win of the gold medal mm. yeah i um I, I wonder what you think about this do, do you feel uh that there is um, an increasing opening to an indigenous worldview. Uh, I, I, I certainly see, you know, uh, like a swell of um, interest in things like meditation and mindfulness and movement. Um, people talking now about ritual and uh, people recognizing the meaning crisis that we're in because of, um, you know, because of uh, a lack of, um relationship to nature and because of um a, a loss of of like ritual and spiritual meaning uh because of the purely materialistic worldview we're living in do you, do you feel that um maybe that's the bubble i'm in but do you feel that that things are changing and uh yeah let me start with that question. Yeah, absolutely. If i just look at my own career over 30 36 37 years of, of promoting this it's only been in the last four to four years i would say uh where uh i'm being asked to do podcasts like this constantly uh more and more people are are, are writing me uh more i can get a, a, you know people want all my royalties from all my books go to indigenous causes but um more and more people are wanting me to write books on this so there's no question that there is 
there is an awakening to indigeneity in Canada. Of course, there's the decolonization um, movement. Um, it's starting to grow in the United States, but people are not yet seeing that to decolonize is to pre-colonize and to pre-colonize is to indigenize and to indigenize is to adopt the indigenous worldview. So it's still, we still have a way to go with that, but you're absolutely correct that there is this, this this awakening, which tends to happen when you get pushed to the edge, right? Because it's in all of our DNA, you know, this realization. And, you know, when you look at this, uh, well, I've had people look at this list and say, well, this isn't fair for us. I, I, uh, I see humor as an essential tool for coping and uh, I, I, the pr- personal vitality is essential and that holistic knowledge is important and all life forms are sentient. You know, I, I, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't like to tolerate justice and I think I understand complementary duality. You know, these are all things on the indigenous side of the worldview chart. And let's say, so I don't really see that that's fair that you say that, you know, our dominant worldview doesn't have those things because I, I live in the dominant worldview. So we'll talk about that with their colleagues and pretty soon she will come and say, and this is what just happened not too long ago when I, I gave a presentation on decolonizing clinical psychology. And, and the, 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 her, her, she says something to the effect of, oh my gosh, I get it. Oh my gosh. I see what I see that all those things that I said, if I stop to think about them being right, I, yes, I agree with that. But it isn't how I really conduct my business. It really isn't how I live my life with my family. It isn't the institutions that I, I'm living with and supporting. Is that what you're saying for arrows? And I kind of wanted to say, well, yeah, duh, you know, but I didn't. And I said, that's brilliant. You know, that is absolutely brilliant because that's exactly what we're what we're what we're what this is about it's it's about a worldview that belongs to all of us it doesn't belong to indigenous people and sadly and tragically you know most indigenous people have lost it 70 percent of my Navajo on my novels say 70 percent of the Navajo nation has 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 lost and the languages are being lost so it's a tragedy we've got to somehow reverse but in the meantime at the and at the same time you know, without playing Indian and without uh, misappropriating, you know, we we really have to uh, do both things. We have to support the place-based knowledge of the existing indigenous peoples while we re-indigenize ourselves by moving in a complementary way as best we can from authoritarianism to a resistance to authoritarianism, from dualistic thinking to complementary duality, from trance is dangerous or stemming from evil, which all the Abrahamic religions say, to trance-based learning is natural and essential, you know, to, to, to from social laws of society being primary to laws of nature being primary. And how can we not do that when we see what is happening and, and climate change and you know, uh, so so this is why the fundamental beginning starting place is uh, the worldview, and there are two worldviews, and one of them isn't isn't working well. And so, what and can we do to balance that out? I, I guess, like, what's the question? How would you invite? It, it comes back to something I said earlier. Um, I am passionate to explore how you might invite coaches to make this shift, recognizing that, you know, it's like what I said when we first started the conversation that 
that coaching, you know, we're, we're in that dominant worldview, you know, like um, that, that a lot of coaching is taking place um, within organizations that, that, um, that are, you know, organized around those, those principles, recognizing that things are changing. I do feel, I do feel like things are changing, but um, you know, it, it feels like we're talking about two levels, like the systemic level, you know, this needs to be system wide change and, that that that's what might allow us collectively to navigate this. But you know, lot of people listening, individual coaches, how how could they bring this into their work more? Do they do that covertly? You know, they they they, they it's just it's just where they're coming from as a coach. Do they invite their clients explicitly into it? Yeah, I just wonder well, if you have I, any I would, thoughts about I would, that. I would recommend I would recommend it to coaches not to say. Uh, I am specializing in indigenous worldview. I would recommend to coaches not to say uh, I have a new, you know, a, a, an approach that is very powerful and uh, it's, it's indigenous. Now I say that sadly, I say that sadly because I believe the more we can give credibility to it, the more we can do that second tier of helping the existing indigenous peoples. But, um, but f- but being honest and being practical, the anti-Indian uh, has been brainwashed into us through years and years and years and years of anti-Indian hegemony. My University of Texas uh, press book, uh, Unlearning the Language of Conquest, uh, exposes that very clearly. So I wouldn't do that. But I would, in fact, move into the indigenous worldview because it is a worldview that belongs to anyone indigenous to earth, as I said earlier. And I would definitely, you know, say, we're going to talk about worldview. And, and if you want to just call one, the uh, uh, a nature-based worldview or a kinship worldview, as we do in, in my, in, in our new book, the kinship, restoring the kinship worldview. That's why we use that. That's fine, right? So that that started sort of to answer that part of your your, your question. Um, in terms of working within the systems, uh, this is going to sound strange, but I'm going to recommend that your coaches begin to adopt a sense of a new way to define hope. If they continue to define define hope. Uh, in both the short term of having their client be successful, but also in making the world a better place. Um, uh, I, I think that that's a largely uh, elusive idea. I have many activists burning out because they think that by doing something, they're going to accomplish this. And then they look at the news and they see what's happening and it's getting worse. You know, look at the climate change movement, for example. Right. Uh, and when I first said this, uh, I was at the University of British Columbia doing a presentation and someone at the end asked me, so, so Foros, do you believe that, that we can turn things around if people begin to adopt uh, more and more the indigenous worldview and find complementarity between their, you know, the, the, the existing systems uh, and, and, and being able to understand that the positive and negatives as not good and bad, but as necessary? And I said, no, I don't think we're going to turn it around. And, oh, you should have seen the, 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 the disappointment and shock and anger in so many of the people in the audience. And then right away, you know, hands went up and I and one of them, one of them spoke out. Well, why are you here? Why are you doing this work if you don't think we can change things? And I said, well, you know, like Sitting Bull, I want to be a human being. 
I want to be a human being. You know, Sitting Bull lived at a time when smallpox had wiped people out much more than COVID has. And, and the buffalo had all been killed and he was being chased. And yet he never stopped doing life to the fullest, writing songs, singing songs, dancing, being generous, resisting, uh, uh, doing ceremony, etc. right? And he was interviewed once uh, when he was in, I think, a prison. And, and, uh, and somebody said, wow, you've, you just never stopped, you know, this vital, you know, people, your generosity, et cetera. He said, well, I, it's my job to be a human being. And also there's this sense of a, a broader, prof- broader perspective that we are spirits inhabiting a body. Any coach that, does, that ignores the spirit world because his client is going to laugh at that or reject it should be able to find a way to, to talk about. Has there been ever, ever, ever anything that you might call you know, a mystical or a spiritual experience that you can think of? Someone's going to have one. Someone's going to talk about about uh, you've ever had any intuition with your garden or roses or your your dog, you know it doesn't take much to recognize the truth, and the truth is that we're spirits inhabiting a, a body, and and whatever you know, no one knows how it works, you know, or what kind of a phenomenon of reincarnation happens, but there's a big picture that's happening as well. So I like Vaclav Havel's uh, uh, definition of hope. He was a great, a great, a great man, a playwright, you know, uh, head of, of a country, etc. And he said, hope is not the certainty of an outcome. Hope is the certainty that whatever you're doing is the right thing to do, regardless of the outcome. Once somebody gets that, whether they're an athlete or an executive or a striving employee or whatever, once you 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 begin to 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 understand this, and this is one of the worldviews, is a fearless trust in the universe. That if you're doing the right thing, you know whether in this life or or later on. And you know, I I had my dear near death experience, and so I have a personal, you know, belief in 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 something that comes after because I saw it. Uh, and and Ray Moody's doctoral work and and his uh, you know, the ten thousand people that have talked about their near death experiences it's almost identical things that we've seen. So I think that that helps. But uh, you know I, I think that there's a lot of ways to to talk about materialism and without having to even frame it as a worldview. You know, just say, well, Joe, let, let's talk about your goals here. I know you want to win this gold medal. And, uh, and, and it's going to bring you a lot of money. You'll get a lot of sponsorship, you know, or I know you want to, you know, you, you want to get this job, whatever it is, right. Let's talk about your values and your, and your morals, you know, uh, and, and what will happen if you do get it, but your, 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 this, this focus isn't going to make you happy. Is it, I can tell you stories about that and, and, and so can anybody else. Right. So I think, you know, anybody that looks at these 40 precepts uh, in, in, you know, in, in either in the, in the, in the book, uh, Restoring the Kinship Worldview, or you, know, you, can, you can Google this very thing you're looking at right now. Just Google worldview chart for arrows, and it'll come, it'll come up on a, on, a, on, a, on a website that talks about it. Um, so all this is, is you know, is, 
is 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 I'm giving all of this this away. This is this is our this is how we have to live if we're going to rebuild. Now, am I saying that it's impossible that a miracle can happen and we can turn things around? No, it's not impossible, and miracles do happen. Uh, but I'm doing this work because I want a podcast like yours to be what's discovered when the people that emerge from their holes or come down from their mountains start to rebuild. I want them to look at your podcast. I want them to read my book, not uh, not one by uh, Donald Trump. Uh, because if you look at the post-apocalyptic movies that are that are out there, almost all of them are starting where we left off with, you know, a white guy with machine gun bullets on his chest and, you know, <laughs> raping a woman. Right. And and so what let's start getting a different image in mind of of of, of, of reducing the, the catastrophe and the suffering while we build minds and leaders and people. And that's what I do with my grandchildren, right? And, uh, and 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 so then then you can go and say, all right, man, you know, let's let's keep going forward with it. And and I'll and I'll close with this uh, when you're ready. Seeing the beauty all around, you cannot do any of, of this work without looking at how all the animals and the creatures and the plants, they're still doing, they're keeping their responsibility. They're still trying to be beautiful. They're still, they're still dancing as, and, until they become extinct. So we have to see the beauty all around. And when we close, I'll play uh, a song on, on the flute that the Cherokee women sang on the trail of tears, which was a horrible forced March that the readers probably are, are listening with me or may not know about, but over a third of the people died and they were forced out of their homelands and had to march into the territory of Oklahoma before it was a state. And the women would sing this song and the song's words were like, yes, this has been difficult, but did you see the animals in the clouds? And did you see the dancing prairie grasses? And did you see the beautiful colors of the trout and hear the beautiful songs of the bird? And, and, and that's what we have to we have to do and, and, and to see that, you know, and, and the worldview helps with that. The help, worldview helps us see the sacredness of life, the beauty of life you know, and, 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 the, and, the, and the, the magic of suffering uh, and the gifts of things like I was diagnosed with terminal cancer in 2008. And, and instead of doing the chemo, which was insisted upon and the surgery for the tumors, you know, I, I really pushed it myself into living this worldview. And, uh, and that was, in, you know, 2008. I know I would be dead right now had I not seen it as a gift and seen, the, you know, the, 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 the magic potential of it. So, um, you know, these are all things that coaches have at the, 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 the power to do because people are coming to them for, for help. And, uh, and, and like I say, um, Live, going at it with that the same worldview, uh, and I've got a number of pe people from the coaching presentation that I did before who can, who are writing me saying that their 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 job has been transformative uh, based on what they learned about Cat Fawn. So let me just really briefly mention Cat Fawn, mm. and then we Please, can yeah. we can wrap it up. Um, so. Cat is constant is the hypnosis that we've been talking about. It's the trance based learning. It's concentration activated transformation. C A T, 
concentration activated transformation. And that's just this phenomenon of not only understanding when we're being hypnotized by an authority figure because we're, we're frightened or recognizing that what our dad or our teacher told us when we were frightened is not true, that we're being hypnotized all the time by the media, recognizing that so you can take control of it, smile at it and, 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 and find the truth. At the same time, the other side of hypnosis is using it to maximize our positive potential. All right. And that's cat. Fawn is taking just four of the 40 precepts and using them to make the transformations in whatever challenges or goals or problems or things that you want to do that, that are brought on the table. The fawn is fear, authority, words, nature, F-A-W-N, fear, authority, words, nature. In the dominant worldview, fear is not something we like. It's either somebody being foolish with it or it's wanting to avoid it at all costs or it's freezing uh, in the midst of it and are being uh, taken by it. An indigenous worldview, fear, once the fight or flight mechanism is over, is an opportunity to practice a virtue, patience, fortitude, courage, humility, honesty, okay, generosity. It's a catalyst. It's an opportunity. So, okay, I'm afraid this has got me afraid, but how could I, how and what way can I use it? Um, authority. Authority in the dominant worldview is almost everything but ourselves, right? It's a, it's external. It's what it's a, the papa, the the pope, the the priest, uh, the president, and so it's in indigenous ways the highest authority is honest reflection on lived experience, under the realization that everything is interconnected. We honor our elders. We honor our our, our spiritual knowledge people that have certain knowledge of the stars, et cetera. And we listen, but boy, you never seen an autonomous person like you will see in an indigenous culture. And I'm not talking about, you know, the 70% that are losing it, but I'm talking about in those cultures that still practice this way. 80% of all biodiversity on mother earth today is on only 20% of the landmass. And that is the 20% that's controlled by 3% of the population who are still indigenous worldview based. So the, the United Nations, largest study ever done, 2019 May, 50 countries, 450 scientists, 15,000 peer reviewed papers say in, indigenous worldview is a major criteria for uh, reducing the loss of biodiversity. So this is, this is science in this. The last one is in nature. If you look up in Oxford University or you look up in Webster's Dictionary, look the word nature, what's it going to say? It's going to say everything but humans. That's got to change. That's got to change. We've got to begin living every day in, a, in some way doing something to pay attention to our breathing and remember that we're exchanging it with the ocean that we're polluting and the plants that are in the trees that might be in, in nearby in the park. We've got to remember that the birds are still planting seeds for, for ultimately food coming to us or, you know, on and on. There's a lot of ways to be aware. 
we've got to be aware when uh, we can be looking at a get on Google and look at the meaning of a cockroach when you see one in your uh, and, and the history and the life of a cockroach, uh, you know, when, when it's in there. Start getting in touch with other than humans. Anthropocentrism is what's killing us and seeing them as teachers. And then once you see you cognitively work with your client and say, ah, okay, I, I see now that that I, I, I want to change this belief system or this behavior or this action. Well, you're not going to be able to do it, as we said, with willful determination. So now you go into cat. That's when you do, you've recognized the hypnosis that brought you into the wrong place. And now you're going to use the same powerful phenomenon to bring you into that, into that right place. So one last question, my friend, and I'll close out with the flute. Well, um, just you didn't talk about words. You, you talked about uh, fear, authority, and nature. Oh, you. Did you mention words? No, I maybe I maybe I skipped that. Yes. Yeah, so words. Thank you. Uh, uh, I just I was thinking that I already talked about Tom Cooper's book. You know, the time before deception. But uh, yes, words very important. Thank you for for pointing that out. So fear, authority, words. Words are sacred vibrations. And we lie to ourselves all the time. We're in a post-truth world. And so when you're working with your client and they say, well, I really want to lose weight. And, and, and you say, well, what do you say to yourself when you look in the mirror? And they say, I see a fat person. Well, then you can go to the, 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 that part of it. You can go to the, the words part of this, of, of this cat fawn dehypnotizing technology. Well, wait a minute. Remember, we have to use our words since in the, in the English language, it's harder to be truthful than it is in the indigenous languages. So we got to use our words more carefully. I don't think that that's honest, is it? And truthful and accurate. Do you? Well, yeah, I do. I see. I see. I, I look in the mirror and I say, I'm fat. Well, but let's really look at the word fat. What is fat? Let's look it up in the dictionary. Fat is a substance that da, 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 da. you can put it in a jar. You know, so fat could be put in a jar. Fat is maybe there's some fatty tissue on your body, but the the idea that you are fat is is you know absurdly untrue. And then the client goes, "Oh, I see what you mean." And so then then you work with them, and then they say, they they think about what the truth is and by you know what words to use. So now you say, "Now, what did you look in the mirror yesterday after our conversation? What what did you see when you looked naked in the mirror?" I saw a beautiful person who happens to have more adipose tissue on their body than they want for health and for, 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 for happiness because of the image. Ah, we can work with that. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I had a client in San Francisco years and years ago when I was practicing in, in Marin County and he wanted to see me. And I said, what's the presenting problem? And he said, I sweat profusely under my armpits. Whenever I, I have to go to an executive meeting and I have executive meetings like four times a week, I got four or five sports coats hanging up here to, to change. I said, what do you say to yourself? What words do you use just before you uh, go into the meeting? He said, what do you mean? I said, I just, what do you say to yourself? I don't know. I look at my watch and I say, I, I have to go to a meeting. I said, okay, I'll schedule you for next week and come in and, and I know you, you, he told me he had done, went, gone to doctors and taken drugs and somebody had said the hypnosis would work. So uh, I scheduled him. He, four days later, he cancels the appointment and, I, and found out why. 
his secretary says, well, he thinks you hypnotized him on the phone and wants to know how much money he should send. <laughs> I said, well, I, <laughs> I said, I didn't, but uh, what, did, what had happened? He said, well, he, he, uh, he did what you said. He said, I, uh, every time he looked at his watch, he said, I want to go to a meeting instead of I have to. And uh, he said he hasn't sweated in five meetings. So he says it doesn't need to, to drive to Marin County. Right? This is the power of words. You know, Rudyard Kipling uh, wasn't thinking of it in the right way, but his famous sentence is, words are mankind's most powerful drug. Well, you know, let's let's look at the words as sacred vibrations and uh, and put those together. So those four things, um, the the fawn, fear, authority, words, and nature, uh, you can find them in, in 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 a number of my books. I talk about them in all of them, including the most recent one, are in sitting sit, the little monograph, Sitting Bull's Words for a World in Crisis. Uh, I show people how uh, they can use the cat fawn to to do a, about 28 of the worldview uh, perspectives and we do that somewhat in, in in a couple of books but anyway um you know or just listen to this this podcast and uh, over and over again and you probably get the same the same information you this this can be done and the sooner that we do it the more people will know are going to be able to rebuild with uh, a, a less less suffering so let me uh go ahead and and uh, play this song that the women sang on the Trail of Tears to remind people that uh, with our new definition of hope, of what you're doing is the right thing to do regardless of the outcome, that we still want to live this life in the best way, seeing that with, the, with, the, with the compassion, with the respect for all, and, uh, and remember to see the beauty that we can, that, that, Many of us that will be listening to this uh, can can see it's much harder for a, more, a growing percentage of the population, and that's another thing to keep in mind. So, but this is what they sang on the Trail of Tears, and thank you very much for an ex- excellent questions and uh, and and uh, I we we didn't start with an opening prayer like I usually do, so let me let me do a closing prayer and then I'll just fade out like a movie with the flute. Otunkashila, Wakantaka, Namakompo, Natatewa, Topa, Naushimaka. Oyate, Oyasin, Unchi, Wichalapon, Oichakipo, Hecho, Wichozani, Washte, Unio, a big table. Oyate, Oyasin, Chanku, Luta, Ochnamani. Ihani Lakovich, Waki, Tunkashi, Kixwe, Etakoe, Oyasin. Okay, my friend. Thank you. Just a, a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com. Put your name in the sign-up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there. And just want to end by wishing you well, and I'll see you again next time. Mm-hmm.